Welcome to Word in the Streets, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, meets Frank Peony, Head of Global Investor Services at Lord Abbott, and Kyujin Yaw, Partner at Lord Abbott, to discuss where the recent increase in the appetite for investing in bonds has come from and what investors should know about rising bond duration in yields. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. And we're continuing here with our series of kind of back-to-school podcasts where we're looking to help educate us all by getting some of the superstars of the global investment community from outside of Barclays this time and getting them to sort of bring their wisdom to us. And we'll have heard we're very lucky to have two of Lord Abbott's stars today. We'll get into that in a second. Just quickly in terms of news flow, I mean, there's not masses news so far this week. Europe, bits of Europe continue to look quite precarious from a sort of macroeconomic outlook perspective. Uh, And the other big bit of the news, I guess, is the oil market where you're seeing OPEC Plus uh, use what many are agreeing to be a sort of higher than normal degree of pricing power that they have at the moment to continue cuts and therefore continue to support the oil market. There is a bit of a debate about how much more this will continue, A, before some of the sort of shale producers get tempted back into the market, tempted away from some of the financial discipline that has been so prevalent over the last few years in particular, and B, with regards to the upcoming US election where it is thought or likely the gasoline prices will be quite a hot political issue uh, if oil prices continue to rise. But with no further ado, Frank and Kujin, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Why don't we start off simple and introduce your roles to the listeners and then we can get into the meat of it, if that is okay with you. Sure, William. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is uh, Frank Paoni. I am a partner at the firm overseeing our global investor services unit, which is basically all of our business ex-US. We have offices that include our regulatory, legal, and compliance, as well as client-facing and investment professionals in Dublin, London, Dubai, Switzerland, Singapore, representation in LATAM, and Tokyo as well. I've been with the firm for 25 years. Lots of time on the road, I'd imagine, Frank. But yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. Quite a bit. <laughs> thank you. What about you? Yeah, thank you, William. And my name is uh, Kyu Jin Ya. I'm a partner portfolio manager at Lord Abbott. Been a portfolio manager um, since 1994. And, Good time to start. Uh, <laughs> while, uh, while I am a portfolio manager on many of our multi-sector products, I do focus mainly on high-quality mandates. Interesting. And I guess the mid-90s is an interesting parallel, parable for today. Some people say, you know, that, that the idea that uh, you had an interest rate rising cycle without a U.S., recession, I guess that's right. Isn't right that's it? But, right. But you did have some EM problems. <laughs> I think we can recall as a result of that same uh, same cycle. That's very helpful. So, I mean, listeners, as you might have guessed, the focus of today is the big bully bond market. Right now, it is again front and center for individual investors because some of the returns on offer just look so juicy again. And that's not been the case for many years in a way, or not also obviously the case for many years. And optically, like I say, Many long bonds haven't offered juice like this for, for decades even. So we're here to dig into it a bit. So Q, what about you? Why, why, why are, you know, what's going on? Why are your long yields so attractive at the moment? I guess we're going to get. Yeah, no, I, we're certainly talking about some interesting times uh, in history. We started with 1994 and uh, now we have to move to just before the great financial crisis to think about when yields were at these types of levels. Yep. And 
you know, you can focus on the two-year and the 10-year treasury yields just as we think about yield curve slope and inversion. Yes. That's the act. Sorry for the listeners just to be sort of going back to a sort of place school, but that's the act of lending to the US government for a period of two or 10 years. They tend to be a much better creditor than I am, so you get a slightly lower yield. <laughs> you and me both. No <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was the summer of 2007 and 2008, respectively, when the two-year treasury yield was close to 5% yield and the 10-year treasury yield was close to about 4 and a quarter. So it's been a very long time. Absolutely. And in terms of sort of duration, this is one of the sort of topics that's part of that implicit in the the conversation you're talking about there. It's a really important concept in investing, uh, not just in bonds as it goes, you know, we can apply it to all sorts of asset classes. But would you unpack it a little bit for our listeners? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. You know, I think at its most simple level, duration gives you, you know, just as the word implies, it gives you a sense of the the timing aspect of your investment. But within fixed income space as investors, what we really highlight is that it's a measure of risk. And it's a measure of risk in the sense that duration gives you a sense of how much price sensitivity you have in an investment to changes in interest rates. Yeah. Right. So if I were to unpack this just a little bit further, but if you buy a 10-year treasury at a 425 yield and you hold that for 10 years, that's your return. You're going to realize that return. But if you hold that bond for one year, and treasury yields decline by 1% over that next year, as you and I both know, duration tells you what that price sensitivity of that bond is. And so what you will realize in terms of a holding period return over that one year in a yield decline of 1% would be closer to probably about 12, 13%. Bit chunkier. Yes. 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 It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a concept that like many individual investors wouldn't have been aware of even you know within bonds or without of bonds until 2022 in a sense exactly. you get to see very quickly as soon as you you know developed world central bankers try and throw a brick wall in front of the global economy by raising interest rates suddenly all sorts of assets showed their sensitivity to those short interest rates kind of going up which was a really revelatory period all I right guess. 2020 it's revelatory is exactly the right word <laughs> 2022 in terms say, of uh, bondholders who just didn't ex- had never seen that type of volatility before yes. and we can point again to 1994 when treasury yields did increase significantly but the pace yeah. in 2022 was even more significant. That was right? amazing. It, it really was. And, and then hence we saw the returns that we did and duration as a risk measure became much more obvious. Yeah, that's yes. interesting. Yeah. And so, so you guys have been doing this sort of rounds uh, around the world, around Europe, and obviously sort of now is a very good time to talk about your area of sort of expertise. Mm-hmm. How have you been finding the message going down? What's the sort of areas of interest? What are the pushbacks? What are people worried about in that context? Yeah, you know, and, and I'm, I, Frank may have some thoughts here as well, but if I were to begin, I think that people again have 2022 on their minds, mm-hmm. right, in terms of, what happened to treasury yields last year. And if you look at the curve right now, I think investors are thinking about, well, we saw what happened in 2022. Is it time now to go ahead and buy duration, go ahead and take that exposure on the yield curve in that scenario where treasury yields revert in some way or decline? Mm -hmm. 
and I think the other kind of scenario that we've encountered is that there's just a tremendous amount of cash after 2022 that is just sitting on the sidelines and a lot of consternation in terms of when do we step back in and where do we step back in? And that includes a discussion along the entire yield curve, the two-year versus the 10-year. We talk about the inversion of the curve. There are so many directions we can go now in yes. this conversation, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say that at a high level, that, that is a lot of the discussion that we've been facing. Yeah, and I would, I would just emphasize in speaking to clients and hearing from them and their concerns, you do have to think about, and we've said 2022 a number of times in this discussion, but 2022 was particularly unique because when you look at bonds and equities, the relationship between those two, in that year was the worst experience you would have had between those two since the late 1800s when we were able to track this. <laughs> so when you when you look at that yeah. and then you say to yourself at the end of 2022, if you had the foresight and say, it has been this bad, what am I gonna do next year? And then all of a sudden this year, you're really not sure what to do with your fixed income because you haven't seen the returns that you necessarily wanted to see, but yields are way up. Mm. So to Q's point um, in our travels, there's really like three, I call them three truths. Number one, people have way too much cash. They're sitting on a lot of cash and that has never been a great investment strategy for the long term. The second thing is people are buying duration or they're buying longer dated bonds because they're thinking, well, maybe there's going to be a recession. This is a good thing to do. But with a yield curve where it is, that can be a particularly dangerous place to be. And then the last thing is, which is sort of a, a one of my three truths, which is kind of an always, which is when everyone says one thing, it's usually not the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Do the opposite. Yes. From the other way. Well, Frank, you give me a really good opportunity to show off there because actually on the behalf of our asset allocation team, because one of the things that we're very proud of in a sense is at the beginning of our 2021 asset allocation refresh, we had a big change in funds and portfolios. And the guys very sensibly decided not only to add inflation like bonds, but also a big stack of diversified commodities and so on. So this was, and it's part of that argument that you need for lots of our clients, we need diversification beyond what stocks and bonds can offer because of that moment, like 2022, which are rare, but you want to be able to provide for them and when there are other assets, so just a chance to show off on their behalf. But both of you touched on something very interesting there. It was the yield curve inversion and recession. And obviously, we've, we've got the situation where a lot of the kind of reliable augers of doom Historically, in the post-war period, the yield curve has been almost infallible, not quite. Did it? I think it predicted, was it in the 50s, it predicted a recession and there was actually only a kind of balance sheet recession, but otherwise a good track record. There was a massive yield curve, curve inversion. There is a massive yield curve inversion. The ISM manufacturing has been down below 50, 45. Where's the recession? Yeah, you know, I think... Well, everyone's uh, been calling for it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's, third, third, maybe third that's exactly truth, the answer. Right? Yeah. Everyone truth. says it's coming. Yeah, yeah that's my yeah, third yeah. truth. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Here we go. Frank proved again. Yeah. You know, I, th I think it's, it's a great point. Uh, when you think about the yield curve and yield curve inversion, I personally think about regimes. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that the regime that we've been in, even before the great financial crisis, in terms of a changed Fed policy. Yeah. Right. So this is time in the time frame of 2004, slightly earlier. We'd never had a Fed that came out and said, as Chairman Greenspan did, I'm going to raise rates 25 basis points per meeting, mm -hmm. every meeting, and then continued by Chairman Bernanke. This change and then the great financial crisis that ensued 
And then all of the Fed support that had to follow after that, it's quantitative easing, it's zero interest rate policy, accommodation. All of these things created an environment where the Fed took significant uncertainty out of the market. Mm. They decreased volatility in the market, removed uncertainty, and really they created a flatter yield curve. Because when you take out uncertainty and the unknown of where the Fed is going- The risk premium go as well. Why why compensate any risk premium or term premium? on longer maturity treasuries, right? That's an interesting point. This this notion that where we began in terms of duration, duration yes. being a measure of risk, the idea being that the Fed now created an environment where you didn't need to be compensated to take that longer duration. Yes, that's a great right? it's a great point. And so for, for listeners, you know, the term premium, there's all sorts of premium or sort of extra compensations. This is the idea that I've got a choice to lend to the government for a series of shorter term increments, or I can do it in a one or and do a 10 year and I should deserve to have compensation for maybe inflation surprises on that journey or policy does that I need some compensation for doing it in a one basically. And that compensation, like you say, it's just disappeared over the last period. And that makes yield con- yield curve inversions less reliable message, as less, predictors less meaningful, yeah. of recessions because that term premium yeah. has disappeared on average, mm. right? Well, it does seem to be reappearing. I know it's not an observable. It's not. <laughs> um, it, we would say that as we move forward, it should reappear. I mean, okay. it, it term premium in this new regime, as we've described, moves around a very small number. Yeah. When the Fed initiates, when they when they cut the Fed funds rate to zero during periods of COVID or whatever else, of course, term premium comes back. Yeah. Right. But the idea being that if you look at the environment right now, with the two-year Treasury yield being approximately 75 basis points higher than the 10-year, mm. we do agree that the term premium and yield curve slope will come back. And that would favor the short part of the curve. We see that as a significant opportunity right now. Now, just what something else sort of, you know, that was sort of, I guess, underneath or around this conversation altogether is sort of periods of history and how can you find, you know, an appropriate comparison? Because what we're talking about here is, you know, since the battle with the inflation, you know, the famous the greatest central bank chair in some people's minds, you know, the Volcker, the Volcker era and the Volcker shock, you know, taking interest rates, what was it, up to 15%, did it get that high? And really crushing inflation. And since then, inflation and interest rates have really just been on a downward path, which has made being a bond investor a phenomenal period. So to that extent, and this latest couple of decades of very low inflation, very low interest rates, what's an appropriate historical comparison? I mean, bonds have been around forever, like we say, but how do we sort of look to a period of history and say, well, this is how I orient myself in the current world? Are we, you know, what if the world is different in terms of productivity growth or, you know, therefore real interest rates or inflation or whatever else? Right. There's lots of questions in there. No, okay? that, well, you can pick and choose. I, yeah. I, think, um, I think the first thought that comes to mind is that when it comes to financial markets, finding an exact historical comparison is is difficult. I agree. It's very difficult. Yeah. I uh, when I look at financial markets, you know, in a statistical sense, 
I, I view it as almost a random walk that has too many factors affecting the market environment and too many disparate factors that affect the environment. But I also agree that it's important to try yeah. to gain perspective from what's happened in history. I think the two, the two aspects that I think are most important as we look forward and the two things to learn from are the question of has the regime really changed in terms of the Fed becoming less transparent, providing less forward guidance, reducing market volatility? This regime that I described earlier, mm. are we moving away from that? Because we know how important the Fed is. And to that, I would say no. I would say that the Fed will continue to be very communicative, transparent, and provide significant forward guidance through their economic projections, through their dot plots, and where they are headed with Fed policy and what their opinions may be. I think the other regime or notion you have to take away is that what is, of course, different now is inflation. Mm -hmm. And I think that with inflation where it is, you have to start thinking about your traditional business cycles of what the Fed does, how it reacts in inflationary environments, what the Fed does, how it reacts in recessionary environments. And I think that you have to somehow take those two truths, as Frank <laughs> might say, and glean from that how you believe the Fed might behave as we move forward, how, they, how we believe they might react to inflationary pressures. And that is, that is going to be the tension as we move through 2024 and 2025 in terms of what will the Fed reaction function be in the future. And it's going to be different than it's been in the past. We just don't know what yet. And I think that there is a great amount of uncertainty around that, which, like is, everything what, else. which is what makes our <laughs> yes. well, is very interesting. <laughs> and and, and yeah. I, could, I could potentially add to this, which is thinking about not so much how this time period compares to another time period, but if you talk about regimes, and we've been talking about the yield curve, the yield curve can either be flat where there's a normal difference between a 2 and a 10, and that's roughly 90 basis points. It can be inverted like we've been right now, like we see right now, which the inversion that we've seen has been not this exaggerated in the last 40 years. Or it can be extremely steep, where you get a lot more for the longer-term bonds that you're buying. The point I'm making in those three regimes, flat, inverted, steep, what's interesting is Shorter-term bonds outperform in two out of three times with those regimes when the yield curve is flat and when the yield curve is inverted, which is where we are now. So, And, and that's not to predict exactly what's going to happen in the future. But if you look at the numbers and you understand that the shorter part of the yield curve is often overlooked because everyone's wondering what's going on with the tenure, what's going on with the tenure. And meanwhile, I get a very attractive income stream with less risk, less duration by being on the shorter end. So lucky we, the asset allocation team has just added a load to uh, short maturity bonds this last SAA refresh. So well done, those guys again. Thank you, Frank. We're obviously just for, again, for listeners, we're talking a lot about the American, the US economy and the Federal Reserve here, the Fed, because in reality, the US economy sets the beat for the world economy. Its capital markets set the beat for the world's capital markets, the correlations with markets 
far flung are extremely high. It's the US you need to look to first of all, and therefore the Federal Reserve to set the beat for the world economy. But we're running out of time. So I just wanted to get one last thing for both of you. What keeps you up at night and what are you most excited about in investment terms? So um, I, I guess I will, I will lead with what I'm most worried about uh, so that we end up on a positive note. Classic positive. <laughs> <laughs> um, Focus on the worries. Yeah, yeah. So I would say it, it really is this notion of what we said earlier, that the, a traditional business cycle. Mm-hmm. And if we do have some type of reaccelerating inflation, in a scenario where the Fed has to reinitiate rate hikes to the tune of another percent or two. Mm. For the markets, I think that that would drive significant yield curve inversion, significant underperformance in risk assets. But really, at the end of the day, as a global society, you worry about what that does to a consumer yeah. and, and, and to uh, the general population. And so putting all that together, I, I, that, that, that is what keeps okay. me awake, along with the, the unknown. Yeah, the unknown. Of, always. Of black swan of it, always. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. why I've got no hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, uh, I guess two types of things can keep you up at night. One is, is, is something that you're fearful of. Another thing could be you're excited about or gives you anxiety in a good way, for example. And I, so I'll answer this slightly differently and off of the investment topic. But we, as we had mentioned earlier, we're, we're a partnership at our organization. And I think what's most important to us and what I'm thinking about late at night is, is making sure that we are properly aligned always with our clients. And the concept being that as a partnership, we're responsible for the stewardship of our clients' assets and making sure that we align appropriately our investment capabilities and our expertise with the needs of the clients. And, and that comes down to having the right people, that comes down to having the right culture. And that's something that uh, people have to be quite vigilant on. So while Q is, uh, is worrying about the bond market appropriately, I'm thinking about those things from my angle. Interesting. Guys, brilliant. That was really super interesting and super useful. So, I mean, just just to round off from my side, remember, this is about the kinds of experts and the kind of expertise that we deploy on your behalf in these multi-asset class funds and portfolios. What we want is to try and deliver kind of all-weather returns. That's the dream. And this is part of that. High quality focused experts deployed on your behalf within an asset allocation that is designed as much as possible to perform in as many different of the myriad potential futures that lie ahead. You had the guys talk about uncertainty. That's certainly true. And that's, that's the aim and that's the mission. And that's why, that's why all the guys here and outside the partners that we work with are incredibly passionate about this job. With that, we will leave you and we will return very shortly. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.